Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the Brew Who podcast. We've returned after, uh, I don't even know how long it's been, but some sort of, I guess, maybe slightly longer hiatus. I don't even know. Uh, I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of brewhoop.com, joined by uh, Riley Feldman, who is the the most, the consistent guy across all these pods uh, and and Kyle Carr once again. Uh, So how are you guys doing tonight? Oh, we're doing excellent. Ready to break down a little media day and ready to look to the season ahead. I am ready to go after a brief hiatus with getting married and going out on honeymoon. I think it's it's kind of good to be back in the wheelhouse. It's nice to not be in eating delicious food in Portugal. Yeah, I was going to say, it was nice eating delicious food in Portugal and Morocco and going on a sangria binge, but that's not a <laughs> So much sangria. Style. So much sangria. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that sounds almost as good as live tweeting media day. Uh, speaking of media day, let's, uh, the Bucks held their annual event, usually filled with high drinks this year seemed, um, maybe, I, maybe, I don't know if more professional is the term, but, uh, we were just mentioning before we went on air that at the, at the cousin center and stuff, there'd be other players would sort of be able to man meander into interviews. Um, I wasn't probably paying enough attention to the Bucks Twitter account. They'd have all these weird like selfies and that kind of stuff from years past. But, uh, certainly this year it seemed to usher in almost like a stateliness to it, especially with the new arrival of Mike Budenholzer. We were, we were of course addressed by the, the ownership group as per usual, uh, Mark Lasry, Wes Edens, Jamie Dynan, and Mike Facitelli, who I just literally always forget about. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it was the usual fair, the kind of platitudes that don't mean a whole lot. Uh, and then we were joined by Mike Budenholzer, John Horst, and then a whole parade of players. But, uh, I think if we're just going around the table, Kyle, what were some of your uh, your big takeaways from Media Day? Whatever uh, whatever small things you're able to glean from these guys. Um, basically, it like kind of like what you're saying. It was pretty stately, pretty professional, relatively tame. There wasn't really a lot of excitement. It just seemed like people would come in, answer questions, and then they left. Um, like I know some of the players, like DJ Wilson, Shabazz Muhammad, that group, all the had one question. I mean, Giannis had a lot of time, but yeah, Giannis and Bledsoe had time. Middleton and Delhi and Dante had some time, but otherwise it was pretty just like calm and at times boring, which <laughs> I guess is the normal thing. But yeah, it just seemed like pretty calm, pretty boring, pretty straightforward, nothing really. No Giannis joke, so that pretty much highlights how it was. There wasn't a Giannis joke for everyone. Yeah, that's a good that's a good indication of where his mind was at. Let's see. In terms of uh, Riley, did you what all did you pay attention to or watch from Media Day? Um, there wasn't like Kyle was saying. How both you guys said it wasn't anything groundbreaking. I thought it was interesting some of the pairings and like the groups that went up there. So um, you had Giannis and Eric, which was an interesting pair. Uh, I'm kind of thinking maybe they put Eric up there because he's a little soft spoken. So maybe Giannis would just soak up all the light. But then. Chris never, I don't, did he ever get out there? I don't think he ever had a moment to go answer questions. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know what to make of that. Probably nothing. Um, Don Maker, I don't think he did either. And then, of course, DJ was in with the, we're all fighting for the 15th spot on the roster <laughs> group, which was hilarious. Um, but no, I would agree with you guys that there wasn't anything groundbreaking. Um, I did notice that Brooke Lopez is gigantic. I mean, compared to John and Ursan, he's a giant. So, which is, uh, something we haven't seen in a while so that's interesting but otherwise yeah not too many uh big takeaways from the day only a couple of things that stood out to me and I, I was i was much more interested in the ownership and coach slash gm part of it usually the players are a little 
Uh, you don't get a whole lot from them, including Tony Snell, who, as per usual, uh, especially without Jason, I did like when he was with Jason Terry out there and there was just such a clear contrast and Tony Snell gets like his 10 word answers out. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the things that Wes Edens talked about very specifically that seemed like maybe a shot across the bow at uh, the prior coach to the Bucks is he said the one obvious difference around the team is Bud has a system. And he wasn't just talking about his actual basketball system. He was talking a little bit more about his approach to the entire team and organization, how he has specific roles for people to slot into and that kind of stuff. So I thought that was uh, that was sort of interesting because we always talked about Jason Kidd did have a system, but, you know, it was much maligned. Um, someone asked about the governorship switching position that was pretty much just pushed away with a, a you know, a wave of the hand by them. Um, and then, uh, the, we don't have problems making decisions. <laughs> it was, uh, I did, uh, when, when they were asked about the difference between, I think it was Eric name who asked the difference between, uh, hiring Bud and hiring, um, John Horse. They were like, well, it was a little smoother this time, I think. Uh, at least uh, time-wise. At least time-wise didn't take quite as Overall, it's much smoother because it couldn't have been worse. <laughs> um, other favorite anecdote was Mark Lazary talking about how far the training facility has come. Like when they would go into the Cousins Center and see buckets on the court because it was catching water because it rained the night before and their team literally couldn't practice. Which had me thinking that maybe that was the cause of Chris Middleton's hamstring ripping uh, completely from the bone. I don't know if... You guys believe in that too, but maybe that's uh, lends a little credence to that. It's not implausible to think. Hmm? I like to think of it as a guy dressed up in the cousin sub like mascot uniform, actually running into him. But <laughs> we, we have our own little theories. <laughs> um, so that was about all I really got from the the ownership part of it. Um, in terms of the GM part, um, Bud. You know, everyone was pretty effusive about the fact that Budenholzer was probably their biggest talent infusion from the offseason, the biggest addition that the franchise made. Uh, a couple of interesting things that Bud said. He talked about Merrick Bledsoe specifically mentioning his defensive ability was what really leaped out leaped out to him, which I think uh, I think that's interesting because I think um, Bledsoe probably has the most potential to improve on that part of the court, considering his lackadaisical approach to it at times. Uh, he also talked didn't talk a whole lot about his specific scheme, but he did mention, um, you know, emphasizing transition defense and um, using high IQ on defense and always staying engaged and that kind of stuff. So clearly he wants to defensive rebounding. He kind of mentioned last and didn't focus a whole lot on because that hasn't been a big part of the Bucks or really the Atlanta Budenholzer teams is either. But uh, so I thought that was interesting to hear Bud say those are kind of the things that he's focused on. Um, and then there was, uh, in terms of his offensive schemes though, there was just like some, Kyle just pointed out something right before the podcast, uh, about the, what it was doing new at their practice tonight. Yeah. So I guess, uh, Eric name and Matt Velasquez were at practice and there were blue boxes that were on the court and Eric had talked to Budenholzer and his response was, I think we're trying to create a lot of space for our players play aggressive and attack in transition, but then followed up with what we call our motion offense, getting to our spots and playing and reading off each other. And that to me kind of, because I know during media day, Boonholzer was talking about, you know, we need the space of floor. We need to like move quickly. And Giannis said it during the, his questions was like, they don't want them playing one versus five. And it's one thing to like hear players say that and hear coaches say that. It's another thing. It's like, oh, this is actually a thing. This is actually going to be a modern spaced out offense. And that blew me away. And I was like, this, this is not a pipe dream. <laughs> this is actually happening. So. 
Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty shows how dire the uh, Bucks fandom was in terms of coaching that we just literally saw like a couple blue squares on the court around the three point arc and are all really excited. <laughs> um, I guess that shows where we were at with Jason Kidd. Um, so. I don't know. There's not a whole lot else to take from media day. It's nice because it at least ushers in the start of the new season. Green and cream scrimmage will be this Saturday or Saturday or Sunday. I can't remember. Uh, I'll look that up, but training camp has started and everything. So it's always fun to get excited about that. But so before we actually get into some real basketball, I think we all wanted to take one last chance here to take like a a a bigger picture look at this upcoming season, maybe the franchise the last couple years, um, especially since ownership, this new ownership group took over and also uh, just kind of just kind of take take stock of where this franchise is at, what sort of stakes there are for this season, what kind of the moves this offseason may have symbolized going forward and that kind of stuff. So really the overarching question that we're going with this broad ranging, hopefully philosophical discussion at times is, is, is the are the Milwaukee bucks on the path to championship contention? Uh, and I mean, that's a very liberal way to approach it. You can think about that a lot of different ways. You can think that they have a superstar wrapped up in that kind of stuff. You can think they're really, really far away. And I think we'll dive into that further um, throughout these questions. But I think we wanted to start with uh, the biggest move. Obviously that was the biggest thing mentioned at, Media Day, which was Mike Budenholzer, and if his hiring this offseason was a symbol of the ownership group's willingness to to change their approach, try something new, or another sign of conservatism conservatism on their part. So, if you look back at what they were saying last year, they were really espousing the idea that familiarity is going to work in the Bucks' uh, favor last year. They didn't have a whole lot of changes. Pretty much, the big change was just signing Tony Snell in the offseason, kept the same coach, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I think that move sort of blew up in their face when they wound up firing Jason Kidd midseason. I think that was admittance of fault and the idea that actually that familiarity didn't quite work the way they wanted. So um, I think it was it's important to look at this Budenholzer hire and see and examine all the tendrils that are involved with it and see whether it is a willingness to change on their part or, like we said, a bit of conservatism. So, Kyle, where do you sort of land on that spectrum? I had said it was more on the conservative side just because – the first thing I thought with Budenholzer was it was a safe hire. You know, it's like going to a Mexican restaurant and getting fajita. Like, it's good. You're not going to be disappointed. But it's like you didn't really want to try the more like kind of like the more extravagant item, the more the item that you don't really hear of. And I think that's just because they went with, you know, a different approach, uh, kind of a home run swing with Jason Kidd. And that ended up blowing up in their face. Granted, most of that was on Kid himself, but when they were going for coaches, you even saw in the hiring process, they were entering guys like Steve Clifford and Monty Williams, and they kind of started to branch out with Ator Messina and at least inquired about Becky Hammond, but they were, I guess, going for a coach that was like, that had experience in the NBA that showed that he had some success, and instead of going for a assistant like Kokoskov or Nick Nurse or Chris Finch, they just decided we're going to get a coach that, you know, it's the floor is going to be high. The ceiling might not be as high compared to like the assistance and not taking a gamble. So I think it was just more on that side, probably because of getting burned by Jason Kidd, and then just going with, we just need someone that knows what they're doing and has shown they can be successful. Riley, where did you sort of land? I would actually kind of go with the opposite direction with that. I would say it's a sign of change and it's kind of in relative terms because 
you know, we're still kind of questioning how much decision-making power Mike Budenholzer has over John Horst and what the situation is there. But as we kind of think back of when they first acquired the team, when they brought Jason Kidd in, it was kind of like super haphazard. It was, um, and essentially bringing in one of their buddies. Um, so it was kind of, they, they played with the team like it was their toy, which is what you would imagine a couple of billionaires who just bought a sports franchise to do. But now after they've gone through the experiment with Jason Kidd, trying to go for someone who might have a high ceiling, you know the guy, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like they're changing towards something that I think we should all view with positivity, and that is ownership who leaves their hands off of the basketball making deci- or basketball decisions. Now, whether or not that's actually the case, we might not know for a while. But I think both with the firing of Jason Kidd, the hiring of John Horst, even though that was totally haphazard as well, that was kind of the first sign of change that they weren't just going to go with the guy who was in-house or a personal pick in like Zanuck, for example. And now we've kind of moved on where it seems, at least from the outside, that John Horst was the one who ran the coaching search, brought Mike Budenholzer in. And yeah, Mike Budenholzer isn't the sexiest pick or anything like that, but he's a guy who has a lot of experience. And with that experience, it, 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 you can feel a little bit more comfortable um, thinking that the owners no longer have their hands on every single decision. So especially with a guy like Budenholzer Lowe, like we were saying, he has a system in place and things like that. So I would say overall, yes, it doesn't seem like a lot of change. Ideally, we would never even hear from the billionaire owners because it would just be totally front office, coach, everything would be on that. That's not the case just yet, but I think slowly but surely we're getting there. Yeah, I think I might tend to side a little more with with Riley on this one. I think the I think like you guys have both discussed, maybe it, hiring Mike Budenholzer wasn't yeah the the quote unquote sexiest pick for the for them to go with. But I think you have a good point, Riley, that they're starting to maybe transition into more uh, of a of, of like a basketball focused approach as to just like taking um, a slightly. I don't want to say nepotistic, but just like, oh, we have these, like we have a cursory view of what basketball is right now. It's like, oh, Jason Kidd, he was a really good player. Why wouldn't we want him to be a part of this franchise right now? Um, they're like trying to make it be a little more, um, hopefully more like process oriented and less like, oh, we're going to handpick this person and handpick this person, which you're right. They, they, you know, they, even if the process was completely botched and, and, and bungled with the, with the horse hiring, um, you know, at some point they had to go through a process to do that. And while Justin Zanuck was the handpicked uh, successor, we don't know who exactly had, had quote unquote handpicked him at the time between the ownership people, uh, you know, they decided to go with someone else and hope that he's going to be able to provide and and, and grow um, and, and grow this franchise. And I think, I, I think it's a little bit um, of a willingness to still trust people who I think are still a little bit in their infancy. I mean, I, I think, Head coaches, you can't necessarily know exactly what they are after five years. I mean, there's a couple, there's examples of that. Dwayne Casey, granted, he has a spotty playoff record, but, um, you know, he showed a lot of success in Toronto after a while. Um, I mean, Eric Spolstra wasn't, you know, doing gangbusters. Uh, granted, he was younger than Mike Budenholzer and that kind of stuff. But I think it takes you a while to figure out what, how exactly you're going to manage people, how exactly you're going to work as a head coach and that sort of stuff. So I feel like in that regard, I mean, John Horst clearly has room to grow as in, in terms of his leadership position, but I still feel like Mike Budenholzer has stuff that he's going to learn going forward. So I feel like in that regard, it's it's maybe not quite as conservative as, as it initially comes off. I did have one thing, and I know this is off base, and we could probably talk about more later, but 
it's kind of weird that Zanuck was the finalist for the Philly GM job, but he still didn't get it. So it kind of made me think, is Edens? Maybe Edens was onto something. And that could be a whole separate discussion we could do at a different time. But it's that just when you mentioned him, Adam, it was like, oh, yeah, that happened a few weeks ago. And that was weird. Yeah, that feel this that the horse decision feels like one that I don't think we're gonna have like a, a legitimate answer on for maybe another two, three years, right? Horst versus Zanuck. I mean, especially until Zanuck somehow finds his way into a position position of power somewhere. I mean, clearly he does an okay job helping develop talent in, in, in Utah and that kind of stuff, but I, I feel like the jury is still gonna be out on Horst for at least maybe another year, you know, if you write off his you write off the Wilson pick as is like, if we analogous to Hammond, write it off as is Joe Alexander or whatever. So we can see what happens with Dante. We can see what happens with the, with the positions he's hired now um, in terms of the players this, this acquired this off season. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's, it's hard to make any sort of judgments on that kind of stuff yet. Yeah. And I would say just kind of in, in terms of them being conservative, we have to kind of keep in mind that they're still totally in win now mode. So whether or not, like how much room do they have to move away from being conservative with that kind of mandate where it's just, we're going to get the best quality, this guy, the best proven kind of like you were just saying, Adam, they're bringing in players who are known quantities or roughly known quantities. Like we'll see with Dante, but you could kind of argue that he might be a little bit of a known quantity. So yes, they're moving away from conservatism, but because their top-down approach is still, we're here to win. We're here. We're basketball. We're a basketball team ownership group and we're here to you know make waves essentially so when you have that as your top-down mandate there's only so far you can go um in terms of moving away from conservatism to still kind of keep on that path yeah and it feels like they haven't it, it feels so odd because it does feel like it has slightly been mixed messaging so one of the things that people were asking about this year is you know for the last couple of years it's been on you know on the future but now that basically said the future is now but it hasn't really felt like it's we've tried to own the future for a couple of years now it's felt like it's Borman like well the future's kind of now it's kind of later too though with Giannis yeah they missed their window with that because when Giannis I mean he's whatever 23 going on 24 so obviously he still has a lot of development and a lot of his prime ahead of him but um if they were ever going to move off of winning as many games as possible um they probably have our that that window is probably already passed or it's just about to pass so that's also something to keep in mind yeah, I agree. And you know that, and that's one way to look at it. And, and you, whether it's like trying to, we, we don't win quite as much and we get a really good young player and that kind of stuff. You talk about that window passing, but there's still sort of the, as they move into even more of like a future is now focused approach with Giannis in his prime, basically a couple of years now with where he'll have crossing over with Chris. There's also the sort of back end churn of the roster that you still want to be able to do. So your cheap contracts are able to fill in for the fact when you start paying for Chris Middleton and potentially Eric Bledsoe and maybe Malcolm Brogdon. So you kind of need those guys to be contributors. You see the, the Warriors do that every year where they try and have their younger players fill in Jordan Bell, Patrick McCall before he fell off a cliff last year, that sort of stuff. So the second thing I wanted to bring up was what, what sort of emphasis maybe Mike Budenholzer should place this year when considering how much to throw young players out in games, um, you know, in, in, in that respect, I'm thinking like Dante, 
Sterling, um, you know, maybe even DJ Wilson, but uh, I think especially Thon is relevant to this argument versus relying on some of the old grizzled vets that he has. I mean, especially Brooke and Urson, who he would, seems like he really wanted in there, so they're probably going to find minutes. But Henson, um, Delhi, those other guys. So, well, how do you how do you sort of think that 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 balance might work out, Riley? And, and how do you think Budenholzer should or maybe also uh, will do that this year? I think it's interesting. So again, I'm going at this with the, this is, so ideally you would, yes, you would probably give a couple of minutes to your young guys to give them developmental time. But if I'm looking at it from the team's perspective where they're trying to win now, and they, they were kind of talking about that at media day, the ownership, how the East is wide open. I think we can all agree with that is that, you know, there's a whole bunch of different scenarios, which, which could see the Bucks having a heck of a year. So if that's going to be the case, I anticipate seeing a lot of the veterans getting most of the burn, and I can't really blame the team for that because you got a whole bunch of guys with Chris, Eric, Brogdon. This could potentially be their final ride with the team. Um, plus, I mean, yes, Giannis, you would hope he, you know, you're able to prove enough to him, and I don't want them to try and win just for simply the sake of proving to Giannis that, oh, we're trying to win, but you do only have him guaranteed for the next three seasons. And I'm not sure, you know, a year from now, who knows what the East is going to look like, but the the fact that it's so wide open right now and you have Giannis on the team, you have all these veterans who are known quantities and they're pretty good and they're going to help theoretically get you to more wins. I think most of the minutes are going to go to those veterans. I can't blame them for that. I would actually probably advocate for it because all the young guys on the roster, um, I mean, Sterling might be the one guy that has untapped upside, but all the other guys, it doesn't feel like it's realistic to expect them to have any sort of meaningful jump up and we'll have to see with Dante as well. But I'm not sure if you're going to be wasting everybody's time and effort on the court by giving Thon some developmental minutes just to give him some developmental minutes. So I anticipate them going for the veterans, can't blame them for it. Um, and I think it just fits with, again, the win now and the way that the East is set up right now. Kyle, how about you? I, I kind of went back and forth, but I think Bud should – kind of try and rely on the youngsters i mean especially thon because i mean they have to figure out what thon is whether he's someone that can handle 20 something minutes a game if he's someone that even if he can be a starter what his future is if they want to pick up his option next year and it's kind of tough to know if he's just sitting on the bench like it'll give us more than an indication that no he's not that guy and i think they he needs to rely on him in terms of you know sterling and dante especially with the wing position it's relatively young. I mean, Brogdon is still kind of young-ish. I mean, Chris isn't young. Tony Snell, like, they're still a relatively young group. And if they can at least get some kind of decent playing time out of especially Dante and Sterling, then you have, you know, depth at the wing at a low contract cost, which would be nice to have. While with the veterans, I mean, you're kind of looking at Brooke, who's only going to be here one year. You have Ursan, who's going to be here probably two before I doubt they're going to, I mean, I don't think they'll guarantee his third gear. And, you know, with those positions, you have Giannis that can kind of cover for them. So I think it's important to get some value on the team, whether it's just getting just bench contributions out of, you know, Dante and Sterling and even Tony Snell, just, I, that's why I think they should lean a little bit towards younger, just because of the depth at the wing. If they can have young, wing depth that's great because you can always you know kind of do what they did with lopez and just plug it in a veteran center and just have him hold the forward and just kind of be like a 
like a stopgap until Don either develops or they find a new center. Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point with uh, considering positional depth, particularly in the backcourt. So you have Eric Bledsoe and Malcolm Brogdon both coming up for contracts this next season. So I think it's going to be an interesting way that Bud's going to have to be able to balance the idea that, I mean, he might not have either of those players next year. Like he doesn't know. So I think being able to build some of those guys' confidence up, especially Sterling Brown and maybe even Dante, if they, if they can see what kind of potential he can be as a as a, as a rookie. Um, I, th- I think it's important to get those those guys worked in and, and see what they're able to add, especially in a game in a, in a game context. But I, I have this feeling that Bud may try and wait, get the feel of those guys. I mean, I think it's a diff- it's a difficult year because we're definitely feeling like we're in sort of a win now mode. But I still feel like we're going to go through a, a year long, maybe feeling out period with Budenholzer, uh, trying to figure out what it is that he has with this roster. He seemed to say he he said as much at. Uh, at media day that he he was excited by this roster and some of its potential. And he seemed to see stuff that maybe hadn't been previously leveraged before. And so, but I'm not totally sure how long it's going to take for him to get a good feel of what those guys are able to offer in practice. And so maybe it's a position where those, the, the veterans sort of are helping while the, the rookies might still be, or the young guys, at least. I mean, you look at Thon Maker last year, he was basically just the, it's just like throwing out like a big stone golem on the court or whatever. Like you may as well just have a scrub out there. Like it's just like not helpful in any way. It's, it's actively hurting your team at times. So I feel like maybe, especially earlier in the year, Budenholzer may be trying to 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 rack up wins or at least get consistency with some of the older veterans while while the younger guys get their get their feet wet, especially in practice. And you sort of rely on the, this uh, this developmental philosophy that that seemed to work so well for Bud back in Atlanta and see if see if that can pay dividends later in the year. Yeah, and I think also what we kind of have to keep in mind when we're talking about this, and this kind of poo-poo's the whole question, but throughout <laughs> the year, there, there, well, there are going to be injuries at some point or another. So in yeah. theory, at least, you can True. say, and, and maybe we go out and maybe there's somebody who's on the buyout market that the Bucks pick up and kind of takes up whatever minutes that a young guy could get. But I'm not sure if any of the guys that are on, or any of the young guys that we just named are exciting enough for a really flash enough. The only one I would really argue, you could argue uh, Sterling and Dante. I'm a big Sterling fan. And Dante, because he's still, again, a question mark. But with Thon and DJ, we sort of think we know what they are, and they haven't flashed anything where you're clamoring, like, well, this guy has to get minutes just to see if he can develop. Um, so I would say they probably, I would agree with Adam that they're not going to emphasize it. And I'm not sure if they're ever going to give them, like, you know, just developmental minutes unless it's, like, you know, a total throwaway game or something along those lines. But it might be something where later in the season, once injuries kind of rack up, then maybe the guys start getting worked in a little bit more. I, okay, Riley, you also said something where you said we shouldn't be too – the Bucks shouldn't be too – explicit in like trying to show Giannis that they're trying to win or like go like completely all in on that kind of thing, that concept, right? It's something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I almost, I, I kind of go back and forth on with that because I, I, I look at, um, I don't know. I try to look at what Oklahoma city has done the past couple of years. And clearly they have an incredibly shrewd GM with a track record of making well, one, one dunderheaded trade, but w- several of them that look very intelligent, at least in retrospect and willing to make the sort of big swings that show, uh, Russell Westbrook that they're trying to be in contention and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, how much can, should the bucks be trying to think into lungs that, that same philosophy and, I mean, does playing older veterans do that for Giannis? Uh, you know, does trying to 
also balance that with showing him that there is some younger talent on the roster do that? Or, I mean, should the Bucks be, you know, I think they should always be looking to try and add impact players, but I feel like that sort of factors into it too. And I think maybe they should be trying to show Giannis that they're trying to win because if they, and I, you know, we have no idea about his mentality. He's always said the right things, but I think it's such a fine line to walk. And if, if this is a guy who's so obsessed with winning and you're not showing in him in like literally every single way possible that you are just as committed to trying to win. Uh, I don't know if he'll want to stay here. I think it's tough though, just because of the contract situations of the guys that would help Giannis most, which is Middleton, Bledsoe and Brogdon, they're all going to be a free agent. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of tough to know what's going to happen. Cause if they just give money to all those guys and it's like, all right, this is who we think is going to help us win Giannis and we're going to do it. And then it just happens from there. But if you, I don't know, you keep only Middleton, but then you bring, you know, a couple like guys that maybe they'll, they're not superstars, but they're people that can come in and help right away. Then that kind of tells a different story. It's, I just don't think the bucks have any chance to make that big swing kind of like what Oklahoma city did, or even Minnesota because they don't, have the assets at the moment and their best trade chip is probably Middleton who it's kind of tough to see who you would trade Middleton for exactly. That's available. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I'm, I would just say it's, it's so difficult to try and balance. Like obviously, yes, Giannis is the sun in our solar system for the bucks. He's everything without him. This team, God only knows kind of trash, you know, trash heap it would be, but <laughs> He's still under contract for the next three seasons. The Bucks can still offer him like stupid level money uh, versus anybody else in the NBA by the time he's up for his next contract. Now, maybe that's enough, not enough if the team continues to have first round exits, but I'm not sure if this is the season right now where, you know, you sell Chris Middleton off to bring in a Jimmy Butler in an attempt to like really maximize it right now and be like, see, honestly, we're trying. We, we got you enough start. Here you go. Um, so I think. It's a tough balance. I don't think this is the season that you really need to start worrying. What I would prefer they do is, yes, compete. You you take this year to kind of implement the system. You start figuring out what everybody's value is. You figure out who works in the system, who doesn't. And then you start looking a little bit more. And again, it's difficult because things change so rapidly in the NBA. But you start thinking, you know, two seasons from now, that should be the goal that, you know, what moves can you make from now until then? And who can you let go? And who do you want to resign and things like that? And it shouldn't be, you know, we're just trying to bring in a star to win right now because we have to prove the honest. Because, I mean, you know, if we win however many games this year, but then we totally handicap ourselves two seasons from now because we made, you know, a swing for the fences for Jimmy Butler and I'm paying him, you know, more money than God to stay on the team. You know, how helpful is that? So I think that's kind of the balance that I'm going for is that I'm not too worried about having to win this year as nice as it would be. I would rather than focus two years from now, which again, that's probably what everybody's hoping for, but that's kind of what I was going for. That makes sense. And I'm certainly not trying to hit the panic button or anything. I just think it's, I, I think that's going to obviously be the most important part of the Bucks franchise for the next couple of years. Obviously the national media loves to eat that stuff up, but uh, I think, I think it's going to be an interesting balance. And I agree with you, Riley, that, that this season certainly isn't the time to go, especially all in particularly while they're still trying to figure out what Budenholzer has to offer and um, you know, see what, see what he thinks of the roster and, and take stock of that kind of stuff. So um, we'll have to, I think, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion, interesting fodder going forward. Um, 
So I think the uh, I think the the next thing we should certainly touch on is. Oh wait, is Kyle out? Kyle might be out, so we can continue on until he hops back in. Okay. Um, all right. So I think the the next important thing that you know we should certainly touch on is um, talking about like actual benchmarks, like what sort of stuff we we really need to see from the Bucks this year to consider them consider it to be a, a successful season. And so I think it's important to go on, you know, we can go on this sort of like, it's harder for people to, to drudge up our, our podcast predictions, which is one of the, uh, one of the benefits of it. But I, I, we would all say this kind of stuff and we will say this stuff when we do a round table on, on, on brew hoop. But I think it's important to come up with very specific benchmarks and, and our ideas, whether that's a win count, whether that's a playoff count um, and years past, I certainly would have had a, I think a, a more liberal idea of what, it would have to be, but I think the the year has certainly and, and focus has certainly shifted to a a more results based approach now and, and getting some of those monkeys off our back. So, uh, Kyle, what did, what did you what do you sort of have as your benchmarks for what you think this season would have to be to be considered a success? I'm gonna go with at least fifty wins. Um, it, I think it could have happened last year, but due to coaching, just bad luck overall just inconsistency it didn't happen and i'm still going to keep that expectation this year i think getting to the eastern conference finals just because i'm thinking the bucks should finish top four in the east you know in some area along with boston philly and toronto so you know if they get say the fourth seed play indiana and that then you play boston i think they can still beat like i don't see why the bucks can't beat any of the other teams and especially because you don't have that giant lebron side shadow in the background like winning two series should be fine and overall i think an easter conference final berth should be very very doable and in the end yeah 50 wins easter conference finals i call that a success because i can't see i can't really think of clear-cut reasons why it wouldn't happen, especially with Budenholzer as a coach. What about you, Riley? Where do you sort of have that 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 benchmark pegged for the team? Um, so for me, I would say I'm not going to go for the 50 wins. I think it's definitely realistic given the talents and the coaching and everything, but I anticipate things probably getting off to a little bit of a slow start as Bud implements the system and the guys who have been on the team try to relearn a system essentially. So I'm not going to get super angry if they're off to a slow start. And I could see them. I think if you could get to like 48 wins, that would be ideal. Um, And I believe, I want to say that was like the fourth of the fifth seed last year in the East. I can't remember. Maybe Indiana got to 48 wins. But if you could get there, I think that's probably going to get you a top four seed in the East, potentially, or at least going to get you right there in contention. And then, obviously, I'd like for them, I think this is probably the area you have to get the first round victory. Um, that's that's the main goal. I'm not so worried about the regular season, but show at least a little bit of progress in, in the playoffs. We can get past the first round, then you get, like we were saying, the proverbial monkey off your back. And then you kind of see you know, this is what got us. This is these are the things that got us here. And then you can kind of come back and reform the team a little bit better now, knowing what works and what doesn't to go on to be even better next year. So this year, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, I don't want them to win 30 games. Um, somewhere in the 40s would be great, and a first round playoff victory would be awesome. But I'm not too concerned about we need to have a top four seed or we need to have 50 plus wins. 
So I'll, I'll just run down what the Eastern Conference was last year. Raptors were first at 59 wins. Who, who knows? Their their team could take some time to like the Bucks take some time to sort of gel and under the new coaching staff and Kawhi obviously his arrival. Boston was at 55 wins in the second seed. 76ers in the third seed at 52nd. Then the Cavaliers at 50 wins. Pacers were fifth at 48. Then it was the Heat and Bucks at six and seven with 44 wins. Um, so, so you were, so they're just about at where you were pegging them, Riley. Uh, I, I'm not as concerned with, with, with wins. I think there should be a, like, obviously they should show like a good process throughout the regular season. I, I don't particularly care about hitting, hitting that 50 win plateau. I think if they do the same sort of sort of thing that Riley said, going around like 48, 49, I, I think that's going to be fine. Uh, I, I really think it, I, I think it's just important to get the first round win. I, I, I know like, even if it like, maybe if it comes on an injury or, or that kind of stuff, um, I, I just think it's important for this franchise to finally have that, that be a thing of the past. I think it was important for Toronto and granted they haven't, they've just run into the LeBron buzzsaw year after year, but it, it seemed like a, a very galvanizing thing for their franchise at the very least. And They've really been um, a strong sense of success since then. And obviously that was very process oriented as well. They've developed young players uh, really well to fill out the fringes of the roster and had their superstars continue to win in a meaningful way. So obviously you don't want to have the Raptors as your the model franchise to follow, um, given the fact that they they haven't really reached the, the heights that you want. But I mean, as a starting point, I think that's uh, I think that's where this this team should be. So I, I really think that they should get out of the first round. Um, I think there's really only two teams that they should have. And there's probably going to be some surprise team, but I mean, I would really only be super scared of the Celtics and 76ers. If, if they were our, our first or second round opponent uh, and who knows what the, the Celtics should presumably be better this year with Gordon Hayward. But I mean, the Bucks did go toe to toe with them last year with what we presume is an inferior coaching staff. So I think for me, it's 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 more about finally getting past that that first round playoff series and and hopefully having a, a record that reflects the fact that they've moved into a modernized offense. They're not you know outperforming their win expectation by an impressive amount. I mean, cleaning the glass only had them at like a projected forty win team last year, so they did a good job outperforming that last year. But I, obviously, there's a lot of results that go into it. But I I really think that first round playoff win has to be something that they need. Uh, I'm inter- I'm interested, Kyle. I'm, you have the sights set set very high for Eastern Conference Finals. Um, I I feel like um, I feel like if what if they got in there by a f- like a little bit of a fluke, let's say there's like an injury in the second round or something that helps them get in there, I, I'd be really curious to see then um, how they examine whether they want to bring back like if they got to that level, if they would just bring everyone back or. Um, if they happen to sort of drown out in the second round, I think it'll be really curious to see if they allow uh, playoff performance to uh, linger in their thoughts and, and maybe it has an outsized expectation on their thoughts uh, for who they should bring back or or whether they're going to try and take the whole season into a hole and, and even consider maybe if, like, let's say Eric Bledsoe, obviously, let's say he repeats as a poopy playoff performance, but he had a really stellar regular season. Like, are they going to just wipe that regular season out and just say, this isn't the guy who's going to be able to take us to where we want to go. So I feel like there's like a lot of, a lot of factors that are going to go into this season and who they decide to bring back next year. I like, I, I appreciate Kyle's expectations or desire for them to get the Eastern conference, conference finals. And I think it's a realistic objective. If, mm-hmm. you know, by the end of the season, everybody kind of comes together and the system is working in place. And if you look at the rotation, 
yeah, there's the worry that Eric might have another bad playoff outing. But, you know, I would say, you know, one through eight, the team is slightly stronger than it was last year. And you have an actual coach in place. So, it, I mean, it's, like you were saying, it, it's not crazy to expect them to maybe get there. Now, obviously, if, you know, for me personally, I would expect them to continue to kind of keep an open mind. And if like, you know, a deal, a really awesome deal comes along for one of your, you know, like Eric or Chris or something like that, that would maybe handicap your ceiling for this season. Um, that might change things. But if everything kind of works out the way that we anticipated to, I don't think getting to the Eastern Conference Finals would be crazy. It's probably a little unrealistic, but, you know, there is a universe out there where it could happen. Kyle, are you back on? Looks like we're having some connection issues. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. All right. Spe- yeah. All right. Call us out. In and out. <laughs> um, no, what I was saying is I think just making the Eastern Conference Finals would give the Bucks the confidence and – at least would give not only the coaching staff, but it give the organization that idea that yes, this team can very much win a title. Yes. Giannis is the guy that could do it. I think it would just take out all of those, you know, those doubts, those hesitations. And I think in order to be successful, they should shoot as high as they can. Like, I'm not going to say they should make the finals and win it this year because I mean, it's, that's still really, really difficult, but I kind of it's good. It's like what I said earlier. I don't see any reason why they can't make the Eastern Conference Finals, even if they play a Boston or you know if Philly continues their upward trend that they showed last year, or if Toronto with Kawhi is a different type of team than when they had Demar Derozan. I, I, there's nothing really out of those three that particularly scare me and think there's no way the Bucks can beat them. If LeBron was still in the Eastern Conference, that'd be a different story because never bet against LeBron. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think that's that's all of these benchmarks are relevant to our next point, which is I, I think we're at an interesting inflection point here in in maybe Giannis's career and definitely the franchise where he seemed, you know, hell-bent on on taking this team to the to kind of heights that he wants to take them. He talked so much so glowingly about his his workout with Kobe and and how he wanted to be taken seriously. Uh so I think it's important now to see whether maybe a little bit of this like honeymoon period with Giannis where he's, I mean, we all still will appreciate how awesome he is, but I mean, I remember just a couple years ago when he would just make a jump shot and I would just, I, I would be able to cheer. Like I would just be able to cheer for a random jumper that he had on a random night. But uh, now that stuff is commonplace and he's taken his place as this clear alpha dog of this team. So I think it's important to kind of wonder like how accountable he should be for the team's success. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that's an, in- an interesting piece to, to parse out of this upcoming year. So, so what do you think, Riley? So I'm totally, like, I, you're not trying, I, I see, or whatever, the way that you're putting the question out there, it's not stating like, oh, is Giannis a winner? Or like, does he have what it takes to take a team <laughs> to the top? Because that's, you know, the worst type of discourse out there. But I'm not really into that narrative at all, obviously. And I, I kind of extrapolate that out to Giannis where, in my opinion, the way that he plays, the style that he plays and what he brings to the team. It's not like he's, you know, a Kobe type, like selfish player where, you know, he's taking responsibility because he's taking every single shot because that's just the way that he plays. Giannis is more than happy to play within the team system. He just happens to be the best player. So a lot of like, you know, the action runs through him. So in my mind, the way that I look at it is, you know, Giannis is responsible just for his, just by existing for X number of wins, you know, whatever that benchmark is. And then it's up to the rest of the team. It's up to the other teammates, it's up to the coaching staff, it's up to the you know the front office, et cetera, et cetera, to move beyond that you know level. So 
I'm not sure if I'm ready to really be like, well, Giannis is responsible. Like, it, and, and then it's a little bit difficult as well in the playoffs because it becomes a lot more of like mono you mono with the stars and things like that. But, you know, how responsible Giannis should be, I'm not, I'm not sure if we're really at that point yet. I mean, he's still 23 going on 24. He's still developing, et cetera, et cetera. And he is the best player on the team. But I'm not sure if I'm ready to say, you know, this is a referendum on Giannis as a star in the NBA this season, I should say. Well, I don't know if it's that. I mean, like, I think we're, I think we all think he's a star, but I mean, if you like look at the top, like, I, I think, uh, like the same stuff we'll be talking to, would we like, what, what's like, I feel like the discourse around Anthony Davis is, is it's beneficial because they talk about the franchise is so dysfunctional, but I don't feel like at least the national media talks about how dysfunctional, like the, like some of the poor moves the Bucks make on the fringes, you know, I feel like, um, like if he hadn't, if Anthony Davis hadn't won last year, um, you know, I mean, he was played amazingly, but I feel like that was a, a huge thing for him to finally take them through the first round. Um, but, you know, I, th- I feel like at, at, at some point, you know, I mean, Giannis is like, he's been, you know, top five player in the NBA. I feel like uh, with, with the type of roster that he still has, it's not like he has chopped liver, but uh, I, I feel like it, it, it seems, ex- you know, respectable to expect him to probably get past the first round. Yeah, yeah I, I, oh, sorry, you can go, Kyle. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, and plus, I feel like this is gonna be the season that people are gonna start seeing it anyway because last year it was well, Jason Kidd's a terrible coach, and the year before was they were young and they didn't really have anything, and Jason Kidd is a terrible coach, and this year, like the roster, even though like people say the roster isn't good, the roster is good enough to get past the first round, like we were saying, and having Budenholzer as a coach takes out the Jason Kidd was a bad coach or Prompty was a bad coach factor. And I think it's just all going to depend on narrative because if Giannis goes out and scores like 35 points per game, averages a triple-double, but the Bucks lose because no one else on the team showed up, do we blame Giannis for that? I don't know. But if Giannis has a stinker of a series, then yeah, I think it's justified and it's going to, and it's going to happen that they're going to say, well, Giannis – isn't isn't a winner or blah 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 so i think it's just going to depend on the narrative but i feel like whether we want to or not it's going to happen after this season and i would say in terms of determining his responsibility you know i i get where you're coming from adam i do agree to a certain extent because you know the the game of basketball unlike any other is driven by the fact that you might have one or two guys who is transcendent who can change the entire game so you know i it is reasonable to ask, you know, however many seasons Giannis is in now into his career for him to take on that mantle, to be the guy who does, you know, the heavy lifting in, you know, critical moments or down the stretch or whatever along those lines. But I think it's more so just a wide narrative thing to kind of figure out how much is he responsible for, you know, the team's success and, you know, how much of it is all the other factors around him. So I think it's just a difficult question to kind of parse out, um, but I get where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's hard to, I think it's really hard to, to debate it in any sort of, I mean, I, mean the, I think because you, you, you see on one side of the aisle, it's like, okay, well, this guy should be able to like lead his team to success. And then the other side of the aisle says, well, have you seen his advanced metrics? Like he's literally dragging, like he's doing like every, literally everything on both sides of the court His RPM is amazing and all that kind of stuff. So uh, there's certainly a, a part to both side, but uh, I, I think we should, should move on to sort of the last and probably the most um, important and, and broadest uh, question we're going to ask here, which is, 
how much closer does is the franchise to seem to a championship than when Edens and Lansbury took over? I mean, since they first, since their introductory press conference, they've talked about building to a championship team. They've said for years it's not going to happen overnight. It feels like uh, this is certainly the closest the team has come without the sort of de- the death march that the last couple of seasons have felt like with, with Jason Kidd. Um, so, you know, let's just open it up. Like what, how, how much closer do you think they are Riley? Um, well, I would kind of take the pessimistic view on this and I think they're not much closer. Um, and the only reasons they are closer if they are closer than they were when they first took over the team is because Giannis has made such, you know, such strides forward in his development as a player and because of external factors going on around the NBA where LeBron moves to the Western Conference. So, you know, that opens up things a lot more. But I would say overall, I I can't say with confidence that I feel like they're a lot closer to being a championship winning team, which for some, and I'm, I count myself among those, that's not the end of the world. Um, but for others, obviously, in terms of championships is everything. And I can understand that viewpoint as well. And if that's your viewpoint, then I would understand if you're frustrated and you don't believe that the team has advanced much since the team or LED took over a couple of years ago. Kyle, come at us with your hashtag rings argument. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I, I guess they are closer. I I would throw an asterisk on it because when they took over the team, that was when they were coming off of the worst season of <laughs> history. So where they started was this: they had the worst record possible. So there was nowhere to go but up. And they have made progress towards being a championship caliber team. I mean, first it was they got the second pick. Then it was, hey, they made the playoffs. Okay, cool. And that turned into a season of not mi- missing the playoffs, everything going wrong. Then it was the series against Toronto where it was like, yeah, they weren't good enough to make the championship. And then the year before, it was against Boston where, again, if they had a better coach, they would have at least made it out of the first round. So now it's like this year they are closer, but I think part of it is because also, you don't have LeBron in the way. And another thing, it's like kind of by default, because a lot of the other teams that were ahead of the Bucks, beside, I think Boston and Toronto are the only teams really that they've still been pretty good since the ownership group took over. But every other team in front of Milwaukee pretty much got worse, whether it's just they capped out other players like Washington and they're not good enough to lose things. You know, you know, just Miami, again, just capping out all their players. Um, Atlanta bottomed out after the majority of their squad left. Trying to think, like, Chicago had their issues. Like, a lot of the teams that were ahead of the Bucks just naturally got worse, while Milwaukee kind of slowly but surely. So I don't know if they if they got necessarily closer, and I'm still thinking Eastern Conference Finals. So I guess I would say yes, but I draw an asterisk, not because of anything Milwaukee's really done. It's just more because everyone around them has either plateaued or gotten worse. Yeah. I think the external factors are really important to look at this. And and one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, is this team on the trajectory to be, uh, it seemed like initially when they took over, it's like, okay, the bucks are, they're going to take, it's going to, this is going to take a little bit of time. They had that surprise first year, which I think still sort of set expectations, skewed expectations in a way that, that hurt the franchise and, and didn't give them the sort of one more top tier pick that they would have had a chance at. But I think it's it's important to look at this. So when they were 
um, first starting out and they had like, you know, Middleton and, and Jabari and, and Giannis, it's like, oh my gosh. Okay. It feels like we're just waiting for the year where all three of these guys just break out. And then this is the team that just like, we make the, the quick sudden burst into the finals. Uh, whereas I now, uh, I don't know if they're on that trajectory. It feels more like if we get to that sort of level, it's going to be like the incremental improvement and the, uh, drawing away of power in the east uh it, it doesn't feel like the bucks are, are poised for some sort of huge burst up to the top uh what, what do you guys think no i would agree with that it's on the one hand we can kind of give them credit for and you know whether or not you want to give them credit for being incremental getting to this point where really the only i mean you know, trying to think of big moves that they made. Obviously, they gave a lot of silly money to like John Henson and Del Vigova and Teletovich, for example. But, you know, they didn't rush out to try and bring in, you know, the big swing piece that, you know, could get them over the top in the short term for that burst. And, you know, they waited for Eric Bledsoe and they waited for his market to go down. Then they grabbed him and they decided to move on from Jabari Parker instead of trying to keep on with that by giving a lot of money and hoping. So I think I agree that it's going to be incremental. I'd say, you know, they have hurt themselves in that they don't have a lot of assets to try and now make that big move to push them over the top. But I kind of return to the fact that Giannis is still around for three more years. We don't know what the free agent market's going to look like next year for Chris, Brogdon, and Eric. So, you know, kind of everything's in place. So, yes, it's incremental, but I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Yeah, I think they have made the steps to doing that um Giannis becoming a superstar really really made this all possible because I had a random thought yesterday on if Giannis doesn't reach superstardom then I think that would have altered things significantly and in which they could have probably have traded him or they would have traded Middleton or they would have probably built the roster differently had Giannis not become a superstar but thankfully he did and I think getting a coach like Budenholzer was a good step. Um, having someone like Middleton is a good, like having him and getting him on that deal for a relatively cheap cost was a good step. So they've made baby steps towards it. I mean, obviously they haven't gotten to Eastern Conference contenders where everyone's picking them to make the finals, but at least you can at least you can kind of see that. Yeah, they are like slowly but surely making the right steps. But I think this summer will really answer that question on if they're really trying to become this championship team or not. Yeah. And when I'm just thinking about some of the ingredients that are necessary, so they obviously have one of the ingredients, which is a superstar player. I think they have a, a superior ingredient. Um, so let's say they went from, you know, they went from like a unsalted butter commodity to like, a, they went to, they got some organic, nice grass fed butter. That's like, that's like Mike, Oh, Mike Budenholzer. It was a terrible joke. I just realized that. Sorry guys. Uh, <laughs> like, that completely flew over my head. Not gonna lie. Uh, sorry about that. But like, so they, they got like a superior thing there. So he goes with the, he makes the delicious main steak. That is Giannis uh, tastes superior as opposed to whatever, um, Larry Drew was, and then um, Jason Kidd was probably like Pam. Um, so, so there's that. It is literally nothing. It just sticks to the pan, and you can't ever get yeah. it out. You can't get the taste of it out of your mouth. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Yep. That's good. Actually, um, I, 
when you finish Adam, I have another comparison. Yeah, I'll, you should just go now, Kyle. <laughs> All right. So it was kind of like having like your alcoholic beverage preference, especially beer. Like they got this, they inherited, you know, the leftover case of Coors Light. And that was Larry Drew. And then they decided, okay, no, we're going to get something else. So they decided to bring in their favorite thing, which, you know, let's call it Natty Ice. And that ended up being Jason Kidd. And after a while, they're like, wait, this is really, really shitty. We need to get rid of it. And now they're they're getting Budenholzer. And that's kind of like a, you know, it's like your small little craft beer. Like, it's not spectacular, but it's better. It's pretty good. Like, no one has anything bad to say about it. It's there. I'm trying to think of, like, it's like a spotted it's, cow. It's Everyone else thinks yep. it's great, but it's it's not the best that you could have gotten, but it is still good. And you I think that's what that with the online hate after that take. You better be ready for the mentions on Twitter. I'm just saying, <laughs> don't I'm, get I'm right spotted cow, bro. I'm right there with you, Kyle. It's a it's a reliable beer, but it ain't it ain't anything special. Oh, he doubles down. Jeez. <laughs> I, mean, I think two women in Moon Man are better than spotted Agreed. cow. Yep, hundred percent agree. Yeah, if I was to think of it in a metaphor where I thought of what do other basketball teams have to compete and what do the Bucks have in terms of basketball stuff, if I was to go for that metaphor, um, you know, they have the star player. They have a pretty strong core three. You know, we'll see how that core adjusts or changes, you know, next season. They have a coach who we at least hope is competent. They have, you know, a roughly decent, you know, top eight guys in the rotation. We'll see what the young guys do. So, I would think if you wanted to be an optimist, and I've seen a lot of people in like the comment section on Bruce's articles, like, you know, seeing mid fifties and wins. And if that's the case, they're definitely in, you could, you could definitely put an optimist tilt on everything and say, you know, everything comes together this season. And there's a chance, you know, if the other teams, again, for whatever reason, they don't reach to their potential, they could compete, maybe not for a championship because of the Warriors. But if, if they did, if there was a universe where they didn't exist, it, it's, I mean, you know, if you were an optimist, you could say they're in position to win a championship. Now, whether or not that's long-term, we'll have to see because of the dynamics of the league. But otherwise, if, if you wanted to be sunny about it, you could see a, a path to, uh, you know, something better. Yeah, and I think, optimi- I mean, optimistic, if you're looking, like, optimistically at, um, let's say, I think Eric Bledsoe has the most room to grow uh, under Budenholzer. I mean, I think Chris Middleton, obviously, has a lot of room to grow, and Giannis, too, but... You know, maybe Eric Bledsoe turns into however competent Drew Drew Holiday was for the Pelicans. He was really good last year in be, becoming like like a superior combo with Anthony Davis and helping them sort of flesh out what that team was going to be um, without Demarcus Cousins. So you think about it in that optimistic view. I mean, that's a that's a pretty dang good big three, especially if Giannis takes another leap forward. Because I mean, Anthony Davis was doing insane stuff last year, but I think I think that's important. And then you sort of just hope i mean the other parts of those ingredients are um you get sort of the savvy veterans in who who are able to when you you know have that random playoff game where they help you win and you know the, i think the bucks have i would say slightly more competent useful veterans this year than they have the last couple years i mean my, my both michael beasley and jason terry both had their moments but i think they both had um pretty pretty noticeable weaknesses and sort of outlived their their usefulness by the end of the year uh, and then you also need like young guys to be able to develop in in surprising ways and, and contribute on cheap contracts. And um, I think if I think you're right, Riley, if you take all those optimistic viewpoints and, and dump them into a bucket, like right, right now the Bucks um, seem like they're in a decent point for that. And I think we both laid out what our expectations are, which aren't you, you know outrageous, but um, I, I think for me, I think they're I think they have 
found, uh, I think this ties back to what we first started with, which it seems like hopefully they're trying to make um, decisions that seem a little more uh, basketball oriented as opposed to just sort of picking and choosing these these people who they, they seem to like and, and maybe haven't done, you know, complete homework on and that kind of stuff. So hopefully, hopefully that'll pay dividends here. Uh, any, any other like closing thoughts on, on before we set, you know, setting the table for this season and, and going forward? I, I think the team will be better just from the coach. And I think someone like Tony Snow will have a better, I think image wise, he's going to have a bounce back season, even though he still shot pretty well last year. It was very consistent. I think it'll be better. I think Bledsoe is going to prove that his regular season was legit and the playoffs were some strange anomaly. I think Don Maker will be something I exp- I'm still confident Dante DiVincenzo will be of decent bench option. Well, and no I won't one die on that hill this season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no one needs to hear uh, me espouse more praise on Tony Snell. So, uh, Riley, anything else you have to say? I would just uh, put in a final reminder for everyone that you know the NBA season is a long one, and one way or another, depending on you know, no matter what you viewpoint, there is some good here with this basketball team, and you know. I want to go from the 30,000 foot view where we're all here to enjoy to watch good basketball. And I think the Bucks will be able to provide that. So even if they're off to a slow start, enjoy the games. Um, remember it's a long season. There's a lot of stuff to, a lot of time to talk about all the other things going around, but um, always remember that good basketball and having Giannis on the team is a blessing and enjoy it while it's here. Yeah. I'm very excited. I feel like not every game is going to feel like a referendum on the coach, which is going to be. Uh, yeah. It's refreshing. Be like if they lose, it's probably because they just were not as good. Not the coaching staff lost a game for them. Uh, that sounds so nice. All right. Well, so, but next time we talk to you guys, we should have some real, uh, well, we'll have some fake basketball, but preseason basketball to hopefully talk about. Um, and just, uh, just mentioning what I said earlier. So that green and cream scrimmage just for the Bucks team is this Saturday, September 29th at 11 AM. If you want tickets, you got to download a ticket prior to the event, go to the Bucks website and do that. They, they said they expect to sell out, but if you are really hankering for some Bucks basketball, anyone in Milwaukee, you should definitely do that. Um, all right. Uh, Riley and Kyle, uh, requisite Twitter plugs. I'm uh, at Riley Feldman. It sounds like it's, you know, it's spelled like it sounds. And I'm Kyle Coche, car in Spanish. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, the sing- he's still got a little sangria in him. Uh, and, uh, I always have sangria. I don't think it's really my system. And uh, I'm at Adam R. Paris on Twitter. Uh, hopefully I'll be more active now that the season's about to start. <laughs> uh, and you should definitely obviously follow at Brew Hoop. And you should check out all of our stuff on brewhoop.com. Uh, Riley's Monday morning media roundup, always a, a, a must, must read. Kyle has some great uh, article up predicting minutes rotations for the Bucks this year. We'll have a, a lot more season preview stuff, over-unders, roundtables, all our thoughts on this season coming up. Um, we'll have a bunch of stat-based stuff looking at last season and maybe what to expect this year. So just keep an eye on brewhoop.com as per usual. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, review us, and um, we really appreciate it. And uh, talk to you again soon. On the streets of